0: passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Christmas good. How was New Year's? Do you guys ring it in like I did by going to bed early? Yeah, that staying up to midnight thing, I've sort of outgrown that. So it's just go to bed, get a good night's sleep. Um, By the way, one of the things we love to do here at Crosswinds at the beginning of each new year is I love to give you a a Bible reading challenge uh, because we definitely need the Bible in our lives. Jesus said it this way, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying literally, just as important as physical food that we need to consume every day to sustain our physical life, is we need the word of God coming into our hearts and into our souls on a daily basis to sustain our spiritual life. And folks, this is why here at Crosswinds, uh, we preach the Bible. We try to keep our finger in the text all the time. Uh, This is why I'm always consistently challenging you for a Bible reading program. So you are reading the Bible on your own in an unfiltered way. And as I said, at the beginning of the year, I love to challenge us as a church body to get into God's Word together to be regularly reading the Bible together. And in particular, I love to keep us on, if possible, the same Bible reading plan. And the reason is because it's very good to have the sheep feeding in the same pasture. It's amazing how God uses that between people in the church body to build one another up. What I'm going to do this morning is I'd like to give you um, a... a challenge to give you a Bible reading challenge but uh, before I do that I'd like to teach you on why we actually need the Bible why we need the Bible in our life so let me go ahead and just briefly pray and then we're gonna jump into a, a good message on the importance of the scriptures for each one of us Heavenly Father I ask that you would help me to teach well I ask that uh, what I'm able to say about your word is very helpful But Lord, thank you for giving us your word. It is so precious, and we are so fortunate to have it. May we just come to love your word more after today. In your name, amen. It was the summer of 1885, it was August, and the heat was sweltering, it was dry. But in the space of 24 hours, Chicago was hit with six and a half inches of rain. That resulted in flooding in the city and sewage from the three quarters of a million people in the city began to flow into the Chicago River. Runoff from the Chicago stockyards also began to flow into the Chicago River. And the Chicago River took that sewage and brought it into Lake Michigan. And then an article in the Chicago Tribune said that uh, the water supply for the city, which was coming out of Lake Michigan, sucked up that toxic brew. And that toxic brew was being fed into the faucets and the water fountains of the city. People began talking about outbreaks of things like Possibly cholera and typhoid and dysentery and other waterborne diseases. Soon there were rumors that people were dying of these diseases. And eventually it was said that one in eight people in Chicago succumbed to those diseases. It was known as the 1885 epidemic in Chicago. And that really was. Sort of assumed to be an established fact. They'd been repeated so many times for so long until the year 2000 when a woman named Libby Hill began to do some research. She was writing a book on the history of the Chicago River and she expected to devote an entire chapter to the 1885 epidemic, which would have been devastating to the people of Chicago. But she wasn't expecting to find what she did when she began looking at death records in the city, she found that in 1885, there was actually fewer deaths in the city, not more deaths in the city. And if there was one in eight people in Chicago had died, there would have been 90,000 bodies. They would have been everywhere. And there was no actual record of that happening. And what she discovered is the whole 1885 epidemic is legend. It's tall tale. It's media that had sort of picked up on it and talked about it, but there was absolutely no evidence for it. And they repeated it for so long that people assumed it was true. Now, interestingly, many people assume the Bible is the same way. They assume the Bible is nothing more than really tall tales. It's just legends. But if you were actually to push it and you're actually to check it and go back in time, you'll find there's absolutely no evidence at all to su- support it. Is that true? Oh, he's well-trained. Is the Bible just a bunch of fictional stories that have assumed to be true because they've been repeated so long? John says no what do you say? Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at some just arguments for why you can believe the Bible, why we trust the Bible here at Crosswinds Church. And we'll also look at why we desperately, desperately need this book in our lives. I'm going to give you a number of reasons we can trust the Bible. We're going to look at the Bible's supernatural nature. Then we're going to look at the Bible, why it's trustworthy and inerrant, Then we'll look at why the Bible is authoritative and why the Bible is the way, really the only true way that we can know God and what he he is like. And then we'll look at how we can get a grip on the Bible and how we can get this incredibly important book in our lives. So that's our uh, trajectory for this morning. So I'd like to ask you to get out your outlines. Make sure you follow along. I have a lot of good notes for you this morning. We'll begin with the first one, which is this. The Bible is a supernatural book. When it comes to understanding the Bible and what it is, that the key verse in understanding this is 2 Timothy 3.16. If you have not memorized that verse, I'd suggest you do memorize it. It's one of those things that's really important to keep handy. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness and i'd like to focus in the very first part which says all scripture is breathed out by god all of the bible it says is literally god speaking to us it's god's words now some of your translations may say um, all of the Bible is inspired by God. I'm not a real fan of the word inspired because what that sort of means to some people is you're having a good day and so you write something good or you do something special. You know how you feel like you, maybe you drink too many cups of coffee and you're doing your homework and all of a sudden you feel like you're inspired so you write an especially long and good paper. So inspiration is the idea that a human being had a really good day and did something well. But that's not what the Greek here says. It's theophanoustinos. Literally, it means that all of Scripture, it's not man's words, it is God's words. God spoke through the authors of the Bible to us, saying exactly what God wanted to say to us. So the entire Bible is God's words is what it says. Well, if that's true, that brings a logical question. Well, is there any evidence that this book is actually God's words to us, not just the words of another human being or other human beings haven't written down? Well, what's what we're going to do? We're going to look at what is the evidence that this book is actually supernatural. First point I'd like to give you is this. You know, the Bible is historically accurate. Very accurate. When it comes to the many references in the Bible, to places, to events, and to people, archaeologists tell us the Bible has amazing accuracy. Maybe some of you have read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. In that book, he cites archaeologists who uh, go to the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which were both written by Luke, and they check out all of the places and things that Luke talks about. 32 different countries, 54 different cities, 9 islands, Archaeologists say every single one of them is historically accurate. They cannot find a single error in the Gospel of Luke or in Acts. That's unique. My favorite quote on this topic comes from Nelson Gluck. Um, He's actually a Jewish archaeologist. He's not a Christian at all. His words are, There has never been a single archaeological discovery that has contradicted the Bible. Every single archaeological discovery he's had has simply served to further confirm the Bible. And by the way, he's not in our camp. That shows you the historical accuracy of this book. Now, and you look at it in all kinds of other books. You find mistakes, historical inaccuracies, but you don't find that in the Bible. Another reason that we can see this Bible is supernatural in nature is the Bible is prophetically accurate. Now, in church, we talk about prophecy all the time, especially during the Christmas season. You know, this is prophecy in the Old Testament about what Jesus would do in the New Testament. Don't we hear that all the time? Right, and we talk about it so frequently that we sort of take it for granted. But here's what we don't know, because we're just not part of these circles. If you go to other religions, you'll find that prophecy is almost completely and totally absent for them. Take Buddhism, take Confucianism, there is zero prophecy. They can't speak about the future because they don't know about the future. Take the Quran and Muhammad. There is only one prophetic statement in that book and it's very vague, it's very general and it's very difficult to even understand what it's talking about. But when you come to the Bible, you have something very, very different. Consistently talking about prophecy. In your outline, I have here the Bible gives us over 2,000 prophecies about the future. Let me give you some examples. Daniel 9 24 tells us the exact time of Jesus' birth. If you want some more details on that, go to my website, look up when I preach Daniel chapter 9, and I can explain that one to you on there. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it tells us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem 700 years before Jesus was born. Remember, we just covered this in the last few weeks. I have to read it to you again. It's so important. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose comings forth is from of old, from ancient days. Literally at the end it says, whose origins is in eternity past, before space and time began. Someone who was in there before, who was in space and time before they began actually will break into space and time and be born in Bethlehem. Only God existed before space and time. God would be born in Bethlehem. This is prophecy, 700 years before Jesus was born. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 tells us Jesus would enter into Jerusalem on a colt. Zechariah 11:12 and 13 tells us that Jesus would be betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver. All Hundreds of years before it takes place. Look what Zechariah 11 says. And you can almost, as you read this, you can read that Zechariah is doing exactly what God wants him to do, but he doesn't even understand why he's doing what he's doing. Like he knows he's writing something prophetic, but he doesn't know where it's going. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the thirty pieces of silver and threw it into the house of the Lord the potter. It's like, okay, you want me to throw that money in the house of the Lord? Okay. That's exactly what Judas does. See how this is prophecy? Isaiah 59, verse. 53 verse 9 describes how Jesus would be put to death between two criminals but buried in a rich man's tomb. I mean, usually if you die between the criminals, you don't end up in a rich man's tomb. There are hundreds of prophecies like this, all very specific, none of which can happen by chance unless God knows the future so God can clearly speak about the future. Folks, there is no other book like this where hundreds of years before, there are thousands of prophecies stating exactly what will take place hundreds of years in the future. I'll give you another reason to show you why the Bible is supernatural. The Bible is a durable book. And if you realize this, throughout history, there have been numerous attempts to wipe this book off of the face of the earth. I mean, that began in the very early church, even before 300 AD, they tried to get rid of this book. You know, the communist Chinese have tried to get rid of this book, but the church has only grown. The Russians have tried to get rid of this book, the church has only grown. It's gone on for sustained years where they've tried to get rid of this book, but yet God supernaturally preserves this book and makes it even the best seller in the world is what it is. My favorite example of this is a guy named Voltaire. He was in the 1700s. He was an outspoken atheist and critic of the Bible. And this is what he said, I put it in your notes. He said, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth, except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. It's foolishness, he said, it's fairy tales. 50 years after his death, His own house was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society to warehouse Bibles because there was such a high demand for them. His own personal printing press that he used to print his own literature against the Bible was then used by the Geneva Bible Society to print more Bibles. That's because God's preserving this book. It's a supernatural book. The, book, the Bible is also, by the way, a consistent book. As we talk about the Bible, we often talk about it as one book, but as you know and I know, it's not really one book. It's a library of 66 different books written in three different languages over the space of 1,500 years by people from completely different backgrounds. Some people, like Amos, when he wrote a, his book of the Bible, he was a farmer. David, he was a king. Luke, he was a physician. All completely diverse backgrounds, diverse cultures. Yet here's the amazing part. The Bible is amazingly consistent. It's like there was one major author controlling all of the minor authors. authors. So all the details between the books line up. Think about this. Try today to get 66 people in a room and get them to agree about anything. Like which is the best sports team? Can't get them to agree about that. Can't get them to agree about politics, that's for sure. Can't get them to agree about COVID, that's for sure. Then how do you get 66 and put them over 1,500 years, three different languages, diverse cultures and backgrounds, yet they all fit together. Unless God is the one who's supernaturally inspiring them and supernaturally in charge of this entire book. Another reason we know this is a supernatural book is the Bible is a miraculous book. You know, if the Bible is truly God's book, and it's truly God's words to us, it stands to reason that this book would have some miraculous things in it. But it, oftentimes, it's the very miraculous nature of the Bible itself that the critics of the Bible use for discrediting the Bible. Oh, look, It's that's miraculous. That can't be true. Take, for instance, uh, Thomas Jefferson. He was at product of the Enlightenment. And as an Enlightenment person, he said, you have to be able to put something in a laboratory. You have to be able to test it. You have to be able to repeat it and understand it. And he said, unless I can test something, repeat something, and understand something, I won't believe something. So he literally one day took his Bible and he cut out of it all of Jesus's miracles. because He says, I can't repeat them. I cannot understand them. So I want to get rid of them. That sounds logical until you think about it for a little while. You cannot take historical events and put them into a laboratory and repeat them to prove them. I'll give you an example of that. How do we know that George Washington went across the Delaware in 1776? Can you put that into a laboratory and repeat it? How do we know that Abraham Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address in 1863? Can you put that into a laboratory and repeat it? The only way you know those things are true and that they happened is you go talk to the eyewitnesses who were there. If you have a preponderance of eyewitnesses, then you know it actually took place and it was true. Now the books of the Bible, you need to understand they were written while the eyewitnesses were still alive. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. He says, hey, these people are still alive. You think I'm saying it is as a joke? Go talk to them. Check it out with them. They'll confirm it's actually true. Now, the Bible was not, the biblical books were not laughed out of town as preposterous lies. They were confirmed to be true by the eyewitnesses that were there, which is why we know that we can trust this book. Last reason why we know this Bible is the Bible we hold is a supernatural book is the Bible is a transforming book. Now as a pastor and as a Christian, I get sort of a a ringside seat to see what this book can do to people's lives. And I can tell you, I have lost track of the number of people that I have met and I have worked with who have begun a life of sin, who have been a completely different person, who have been a lost person, and they began reading this book and being under the preaching and teaching of this book, and God met them through this book. God transformed them through this book. The scripture says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away, and behold, the new has come. Show me any other book in this world that is transforming lives, that is taking people from being lost and dead in sin and making them into completely new creations. Only this book. So I gave you six reasons why this is a supernatural book, and it's why it's God's book. But that brings us to another question maybe God's book, but is the Bible we have today a trustworthy book? Let's answer that. And I'm going to tell you, the Bible is a trustworthy book. Let me give you some reasons. First, the Bible is true because God's character is true. The Bible tells us that because God's character is true, and remember, this book is literally the very words of God speaking to us. Therefore, the Bible, since it represents God's words to us, must be true. Psalm 119, But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are what? True. John 17, 17. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is what? Truth. Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to, what? Lie. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119. It has 176 verses. That entire chapter is all about the word of God and why we can trust it. And it repeatedly, repeatedly says in Psalm 119 that God's word is true. For instance, verse 142 of that chapter. Your righteousness is righteous forever. Your law is true. So, since God's nature is always true, that he cannot lie, and the Bible is literally God speaking to us, then we know the words of the Bible are therefore true. As it says in Titus 1-2, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, some people say, well, God never lies, but maybe the people who were writing down the Bible, maybe they lied. (laughs) Folks, think about this. If God is God, and God is literally speaking to us, having the prophets and the apostles write down exactly what he wants, and he cannot have them write down exactly what he wants, is he God in the first place? Of course he wouldn't be god by definition can say exactly what he wants to say through his prophets by definition without error another reason we know that we can trust this book (coughs) the bible is true because jesus claimed it was true do you know that jesus believed this bible is trustworthy he believed it is true even the more miraculous parts of this book Folks, if you can trust Jesus to save your soul when you die, you can trust what Jesus says is the nature and character of this book. True? They go together. Jesus consistently used the Old Testament and used it as the authority for his words in the New Testament. Jesus took the miraculous stories of the Old Testament, and he confirmed them as true, and he said, you know what? They literally happened. Take, for instance, Noah. You know, the worldwide flood, Noah, animals. People say, oh, that didn't really happen. That's just all fiction. Not according to Jesus. Jesus says this. So as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. Jesus is not looking at that as fictional history. Jesus considers Noah and the flood factual history. How about Sodom and Gomorrah? Oh that didn't really happen. Fire from heaven falling on cities. Oh, come on, that's just legend. Not according to Jesus. Matthew 11:24, and I could actually read more verses, we just don't have the time to prove this point to you. Jesus says, "But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you." How about the Exodus from Egypt? And remember, they went for 40 years in the wilderness where God literally fed them with manna every morning, supernatural bread that was on the ground. Six days a week, not seven days a week. So it was not a natural occurrence, it was a supernatural occurrence. What does Jesus say about that? Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. It actually happened, folks. They ate the manna. How about Jonah? You know, Jonah ends up inside of a big fish for three days and three nights. Do you think Jesus believed that literally happened? Look what he says. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, if Jonah is not literally true, then why would Jesus and his death and burial be literally true? If Jesus' death and burial for three days is three nights is literally true, then why wouldn't Jonah in the fish be literally true? Jesus's position, by the way, on the Old Testament, as he's speaking here, is that the Old Testament is literally true, not just in concept, not just in word, but in every letter. Every letter of the Old Testament is exactly what God wanted to say without error. Say, prove it to me. Sure, let's just go back to the Bible. Matthew 5.18, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. An iota is the smallest consonant in Hebrew. A dot is the smallest vowel in Hebrew. He says it doesn't matter how small the letter is. It's not going to pass away until all is accomplished. (coughs) Let me move on to one more reason to look at the Bible and see it as inerrant. The Bible is true because as God's word, that logically means it must be true. Today you'll run across some pastors and some teachers who will say the Bible is basically trustworthy, but they'll say it's certainly not without error. They'll say, if you look in the Bible, we can see there's things that the Bible got wrong. And then they'll come around and say well don't worry about it because at least most of the bible is clear and god got his message across even though the bible is sprinkled with errors that is a very common position nowadays now i want to ask you does that make sense no it does not make sense at all and i used this uh recently in a jude series but i thought it's okay we pick it up again Adam Hamilton is a good example of this. I pulled this directly off of the United Methodist Church website and it's on the question of what do we believe about the Bible? And here's what Adam says. He says this, people ask me if we have to read the Bible literally. Well, that hinges on what parts of it you're reading. When you go to Genesis, Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, those are archetypical stories. Those are not the stories of actual ancient people who lived thousands of years ago, they're trying to tell us about ourselves. We don't read those stories literally. We are Adam and Eve. We don't believe they are literally true. Or take the story of Jonah being swallowed by a whale. That story is meant to be read prophetically, not literally. Did it really happen? Well, I'm okay if it did, but that is not the point of the story. What do you think? Have I trained you well or not? Come on, folks. The Apostle Paul sees Adam as a literal first person in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, again and again. Adam Hamilton, he may not see Adam and Eve as literally true, but Jesus did. I'm going with Jesus. Adam Hamilton may not see Jonah, excuse me, I meant to say Paul, excuse me. Paul saw him as literally true. Now, Adam Hamilton may not see Jonah as literally true, but Jesus did. I'm gonna go with what Jesus says about Jonah. I'm gonna go with what the apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit said about Adam as a literal first creation from God. You see how they try to just erode your confidence in the scripture? Where if you put your finger in the text, you can't go there. Now, something else often happens. When you start to be able to say that parts of the Bible are true and parts of the Bible are in error, what you do is you read it and who's gonna decide which parts are true and which parts are wrong? Well, that would be what we do. So you read through the Bible and say, well, I don't like that. that. must be wrong so let's just cross it out and I don't like that so that must be wrong so let's just cross it out and that puts us in the position of being judge and jury of what is literally the words of God that is not our position we submit to the Bible we don't become judge and jury cutting out what we don't like in the Bible and yet that is a very common position today Let me bring you to another uh, one, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, ELCA, right off their website once again. I've used this in the past. Some of you have been around and have seen this. Having done this listening, they say, we sometimes conclude either that the writer's culture or personal experience, such as subordination of women or keeping of slaves, seems to have prompted his missing what God was saying or doing or that God is now saying or doing something new. Oh, we don't like this part. I guess the Bible's writers missed what God was saying or doing. We get to cross it out. No. This is the very word of God. It is always true. That is what the Bible says about itself. So we've seen two things about this book. Number one, we've seen its supernatural nature. We've also, secondly, seen its inerrant nature, that it is true. In a world filled with spin, where we don't know the truth, this book is the truth. And that brings us to our third point, which is the Bible is an authoritative book. This past week, in spite of my cold, (coughs) I was at the gym, I was lifting, and I like to lift. And by the way, I like to push myself. If you guys know me, I like to push myself in all areas. So when I'm in the gym, I like to go as heavy as I can. And I'm doing as heavy as I can on the bench press. And by the way, the, the owner of the gym I was at, he's a really nice guy. He comes over and he spots me so I don't hurt myself, which is what happens when you're an old man. You do that really easy. So I'm getting onto my last set. And he says to me, he says, you know, you've really been working hard. Why don't you drop the weight and go lighter? So you know, you know what I said? What do you think? No, absolutely not. I don't want to go lighter. Keep the same weight. Well, see, I don't have to listen to him. He can make suggestions for me, but he's not the authority over me. And when it comes to the Bible, the problem is that most people seem to take this as a book of suggestions. They don't see it as the book that is an authority over them. They see it as something just, it's like a YouTube video on how to lose weight. You know, just like your suggestions of what you may do. It's not that way. Look what the Bible says about itself. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that a suggestion? No, absolutely not. That is a complete statement of authority. You either have to listen to it or you don't listen to it. It's either right or it's wrong. There's no middle ground. You know, Jesus talks about how people would respond to his words, how, he, how people would respond to God's words. He said it's going to be one of two ways. He said it here in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been built on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall on it. Jesus says, how you're building your life will depend on how you respond to God's words in this book. If you listen to them and follow them, you're building your house on the rock. You will not fall apart when life's storms come. But if you listen to these words and you ignore these words and consider them to be nothing more than suggestions, your life will fall apart when storms come. So I want to ask you today, are you a wise or are you a foolish builder when it comes to how you treat this book? Now, I want to give you some tests to help you answer that question. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. Is that a suggestion? Or are you treating that as an authority in your life, that your words should build people up, not tear people down? Hebrews 13.4 says, The marriage bed should be kept pure, and God will judge the sexually immoral. Are you taking that as a suggestion you can ignore or an authority you must obey? Are you sleeping with your girlfriend right now? Are you faithful to your wife right now? Are you looking at porn on the internet right now? And then pretending like these words are not true. This is not a suggestion to ignore. These are God's words that need to be obeyed. Hebrews 4:31 says, Let all bitterness go. That as you have been forgiven, you must forgive others. That's not a suggestion, that's a command. Folks, holding on to bitterness is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to get sick. It doesn't work. These are not suggestions. These are commands under the authority of God. This brings us to another point. The Bible is an essential part of knowing God. It's essential to know him. Let's take a little thought experiment. Imagine for a moment you, you go to work and you're in the cafeteria at work. You know Troy over the cafeteria there? And then... Across on the other side of the cafeteria, you hear some people talking. And you can't help but overhear them in the distance. But as you're overhearing them, all of a sudden you realize they're talking about you. They're talking about your life and what your character is like. And then they're talking about your marriage. And they're talking about your job performance at work. And you can't believe you're hearing this. What you really can't believe is you've never met these people. You don't even know these people. Everything they're saying about you, they're making up about you because they've never met you. Now, as silly as that may sound, that is exactly what most people do when it comes to God. They don't know him. They haven't bothered to meet him in this book, but they're happy to give you your, their speculations about what they think God is like. I'll give you an example. Some of you I know have recently seen the movie The Shack, which is based on a book. It was very popular for a while out there. It's the story, fictional story, of a a man who lost his daughter and in the grief of that, he ends up going out to a shack and there in the shack, he meets God, God in the Trinity. Uh, God the Father is portrayed as a large African-American woman who has a a good laugh. God the Son is portrayed as a a handyman who skips stones. God the Holy Spirit is portrayed as a thin Asian woman, woman. Now, the author of the book has been asked in interviews, you know, why did you portray God that way? And this was his answer. Well, that's the way I like to think about what God is probably like. It's all speculation. It's based on the fantasies of his mind. It's not based on the truth and how God actually is the way you discover how God actually is is you meet him in this book. This tells us what God is actually like. And there are millions of people who are following the speculations of the author of the shack, not finding the the actual truth about what God is like in this book. Folks, the, the Bible says, there are only two ways to genuinely know what God is like. And this is found in Psalm 19. I'll just quickly summarize. Psalm 19 says, the first way we know what God is like is by looking at nature around us. Nature tells us about God's amazing vastness, about his amazing power, about his amazing creativity and complexity and his love for beauty. Just look around you. We see all those things. But that's all that Nature can tell us. The only other place you go to learn more about God is His Word, His literal spoken word to us, which reveals to us things we cannot know by looking at nature itself. Look what Psalm 19 says about this book (coughs) The law of the Lord is perfect and it will revive the soul. Isn't that great? The testimony of the Lord is sure. It'll make wise the simple. I need that. The precepts of the Lord are right. It'll rejoice the heart. We all need that. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. Then he comes down and says this. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. David says in Psalm 19 if you had to make a choice between winning the lottery and not having this book, or not winning the lottery and keeping this book, you would be better off if you had this book and didn't win the lottery. It's worth more than fine gold to have God's actual words to us. That's the book you hold in your hand. Anybody like chocolate? I do. Can't eat much of it. You know, a moment on the lips, spends a lifetime on the hips. But why I like chocolate, I have to limit my chocolate. But I'll say it's something better than chocolate, sweeter than honey, more joy bringing me our life is God's words in this book to our soul. Folks, this book is supernatural. It's God's words literally to us. This book is inerrant. It's something that is guaranteed to tell us the truth in a world filled with spin. This book is authoritative. It's not suggestions for our life. It's the commands we need for our life. This book, folks, is the only way to know God and to be able to relate with him and to be made right with him. Everything else is speculation and guesswork like the shack. Not only can we trust this book, folks, we desperately, desperately need this book in our lives. That is why my last point for you is this. How do I get the Bible into my life. Nicholas Carr wrote a book although What Is the Internet Doing to Our Brains? His conclusion of his studies is the internet is making us stupid, filling our brains with useless information and YouTube funny cat videos. That's what the internet is doing. His response, he said, what we need now more than ever is to read, read good, solid books well, what is the most solid book of all? What is the best book of all that we could ever read and ever know? It's this book. And folks, many of us do not read this book. While the, um, a study that I ran across recently said 95% of Christians have a Bible, only 19% of Christians read the Bible two or more times a week. of Christians do not read this book more than two times a week. In other words, their finger is not in the text. Yet this is the one book we desperately need in our life. Here's my recommendations of how to get it in there. Number one, get a grip on the Bible by hearing it taught. Folks, be a regular attender here at Crosswinds. Take notes when we teach this book. You're not going to necessarily find the exposition of this book anywhere. You find it in God's house, in God's church. I have have one friend. He comes here on Sundays, and he's here with his children, and he says, you know what? I cannot pay attention when I'm in church with my kids, so I go home on Sunday afternoon, and I re-listen to the sermon." with my ear in by myself so I can concentrate on it and learn it because I desperately need it. Wow, that's amazing. Second way to get it in our life is get a grip on the Bible by reading it regularly. I told you that I was gonna give you a Bible reading challenge and let me just give you that Bible reading challenge as a church family. Pastor Jordan and I have been working on this. We've been doing this for two years prior to this, and we've learned about the right length to be able to give to you guys is about one chapter a day. That seems to be a really good consumable amount of information. And so we looked at different ways we could break this up, and here's what we came up with. If you take one chapter a day, five days a week, you read the entire New Testament in one year. So that's my first Bible reading challenge. If you look, you have your Bible reading card. Will you join us reading one chapter a day, five days a week, you'll finish the New Testament in a year. Here's the one problem with that. You miss the Old Testament. So there's a second Bible reading challenge I'm going to give you this morning. We did some more math and learned that if you read one chapter a day of the Old Testament, six days a week, you finish the entire Old Testament in two years, almost exactly. So if you're somebody who's new to this, and you just want to take the New Testament reading challenge, that's fine. If you're somebody who's a little bit more advanced, you'd like to take the Old Testament and the New Testament reading challenge, which, by the way, is only at max two chapters a day, and easy to get caught up on the weekends, I challenge you to take that. By the way, um, there's something else we're going to do for you special. What we're going to do is we've worked with the Bible Project, and we're going to send you guys and make available um, a little five to seven minute video, which gives you an overview of a Bible book right before we read it. Now, there's two ways you can get a hold of those videos. One is you can go in the church library. You'll notice they'll be playing on the TV in the library. If you want to sit down and watch for five to seven minutes, friends, you can get an overview of Matthew. The first, I think it's 11 or 13 chapters today just by watching there. But there's something else I think it's even better. And that is I would love you to sign up on the Church Center app. Hopefully you all have the Church Center app. Let me show you what you can do. Go ahead and put that up. You go to the Church Center app, that's the home page. Right there, a second button down says, join a group. In fact, you can do it right now if you want. Click on the join the group button, and it brings you to this. Go ahead, Tyler. It brings you to the groups you're in, but if you scroll to the bottom, you'll see different categories of groups you can join. You click on the one that says growth, click on that, and you'll see the different ways to grow. And the bottom one is this, take up and read. You click on that, and you'll see inside, Join This Group. And in that group, I will send you the Bible, the, uh, the Bible reading cards each month. I'll also send you the links for the Bible project videos, so you can watch those little five- to seven-minute videos of what a Bible book is about right on your phone in the convenience of your own home anytime you want to get you into this book. Now, if you don't have the, the Church Center app, and if you wanna sign up another way, you can use the, simply the response cards. Take the response card and put your name down there and say, hey, I'm gonna sign up for this, and at least I'll know about it that way. But the best way, I would say, is to get in the Church Center app. The last point was to try and memorize a verse. This is what I've done for years. I try to memorize one verse a week a verse that I found in my Bible reading that I wanna remember. I put it on a card and I try and keep it with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Bible. Thank you for your amazing book that we are so fortunate to have. A book that is supernatural. A book that can transform people's lives. A book that tells us the truth and shows us the truth in a world filled with error. A book that is without error. A book that is authoritative for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us an authoritative book to guide our life. And that's the book that we can use to know you and love you better. Now I pray that as a church family, we would keep our finger in the text. Not just on Sunday mornings, but we keep our finger in the text throughout the week as we read through the New Testament this year and the Old Testament over the next two years. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.